Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. The coronavirus pandemic highlights a fundamental fact. Disparities in health outcomes by race and ethnicity exist across the country and here in Connecticut. COVID-19 has taken an unequal toll on Black people, Latinos, and American Indians. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Nationwide, Black people are twice as likely to have died compared to their white counterparts. And in Connecticut, Black people make up 10% of the population and 14% of COVID deaths. That's according to COVIDTracking.com. While we may all feel like we're moving away from the dangers of the pandemic, community and healthcare officials want us to take the lessons from the past into the future. Today, we listen to a panel I interviewed as part of Cutline, Connecticut Public Television's monthly news program. We look at COVID here in Connecticut through the lens of race and equity. We'll examine how structural issues cause people of color to bear a disproportionate burden of the virus's wrath. Our panelists are Kika Matos, Vice President of Initiatives at the Vera Institute of Justice. Dr. Satu Vora is Chief Medical Officer of the Mashantucket Pequot Tribal Nation. Stephen Hernandez is Executive Director of the Commission on Women, Children, Seniors, Equity, and Opportunity. And Reverend Robin Anderson is Pastor of the Blackwell Memorial AME Zion Church and Executive Director of the Ministerial Health Fellowship Advocacy Coalition. Ask Kika about what she's been seeing over the last year. So I live in a... a a neighborhood in New Haven, Connecticut called Fairhaven. Fairhaven is a, a community whose population is 83% people of color. It is a densely populated neighborhood. It is where the majority of undocumented immigrants live in New Haven. And it is a place where a significant number of essential workers um, uh, live. And when the pandemic hit, it really exposed the fault lines that we see in this state when it comes to issues of race and access to healthcare uh, and issues of equity. And so the, 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 the bottom line uh, when it came to the pandemic is that we had one of the highest rates of infection in the entire state. And then when the vaccine began to be rolled out, uh, we were one of the communities that had least access to the vaccine. Uh, because we have a significant number of undocumented immigrants, we also saw the lack of attention and access to uh, solutions around uh, the pandemic and equity when it came to some of the most disenfranchised people in this state. So what would more attention look like, but also the appropriate attention to improve some of the challenges you just mentioned? Yeah, I, I've been pretty open and honest uh, with the state and my critique of the state when it comes to the pandemic. I have said uh, very bluntly that the state has failed communities of color in this uh, state, in New Haven, in my community. Why is that? Because people of color are routinely marginalized and left behind. 
despite the fact that the pandemic hit my community, uh, the infection rates were three or four times that of other parts of the state. At no point in time did the state focus attention on communities like mine to say, okay, we have a significant problem here. We have to identify the reasons why the pandemic is affecting this community of color uniquely, and we have to figure out what we can do. So we were left on our own devices to try to figure out how do we get access to the PPE uh, to give to communities of color? How do we try to protect our communities from this devastating illness? How do we support people who have loved ones die and they can't afford the kind of burial that they want to give them? When it came to the pandemic, what did we see? We again saw a real lack of attention to issues related to culture. So for example, um, a lot of the website that provided pandemic information was in English only. You could hit a button to have a terrible tra uh, Spanish translation. A lot of the fact sheets were also in English. We're looking at a population in my community with lack of access to Wi-Fi, a lack of access to computers, significant uh, language barriers. And we realized uh, in short order that we were gonna be the ones who were gonna have to find the solutions to these problems ourselves. And that's what we set about to do. So Dr. Vora, Kika mentioned a number of those systemic challenges. And I wondered if you could talk to us about how poor access to care and engagement in the communities that you care for are playing out. Certainly, you know, um, I represent the health interests of the Mashantucket Pequot Tribal Nation as its chief medical officer. But I can speak uh, certainly from my experience from learning throughout Indian country that access to not just uh, the care, but timely trusted information delivered by local uh, champions is oftentimes missing in native communities. And what the pandemic has highlighted for us is that sometimes just access is not enough. Uh, it has to lead to acceptance uh, by the people that we all serve. And I think the central missing piece perhaps is the fact that trust is a vital determinant of health and how may we start rebuilding and in many cases building trust not during a crisis but as one of my mentors in a mindfulness um, um, training told me the best time to fix the holes in the parachute are when we are safely on the ground and not while we are actively jumping out of the airplane the same holds true for our collective work with uh, native populations, indigenous people, and certainly any other uh, communities of color, um, underrepresented uh, communities. So I think we have a lot of work ahead of us. We know that you know poor access leads to adverse outcomes. Native communities have much higher incidence of COVID. They have a higher risk of uh, comorbid condition that results in more severe disease uh, and death. Reverend Anderson, what about you? How are you seeing acts, poor access to care and engagement in the communities you care for manifest? Thank you for that question um, in many different ways. Um, the medical system uh, really has really, uh, in many ways, uh, failed uh, the uh, black and brown uh, community in terms of not really having access uh, to care, uh, whether or not having insurance, 
Uh, I've had several of my uh, members of my congregation who um, were working uh, with minimum wage jobs and were uh, accessing insurance uh, because they did not meet the income level for uh, free insurance uh, through Husky. And they um, were playing, paying premiums but had to make choices of whether or not to eat or to actually pay their insurance premium. So there's many people that have had that kind of experience. Uh, people in the medical field don't look like them. And so in many ways, they don't feel like they understand uh, some of the concerns and some of the issues that they have had. I mean, we've been through this 100 years ago with the, with the Spanish flu, the same thing, that disproportionate amount of people because of health disparities, uh, because of the lack of access to health care, people of color died in disproportionate rates, just like we're seeing now. And so the question becomes to me, what are we going to do so that people feel like they have access to health care and access that health care and also feel like uh, people do have a genuine concern about their health care and not just because we're in a pandemic and all of a sudden we need you for herd immunity and so we want to um, make sure we're concerned about the health care but really making sure that things are in place to address the disparities that black and brown people face each and every day. Stephen, Reverend Anderson laid out for us a number of issues and challenges that seem nested, but they also seem nested across a number of groups. What are you seeing in the work that you do about how these issues show up? Dr. Brown-Dean, thank you so much, uh, firstly, for having us and for that question. You know, the, the deleterious social determinants of health, the way that we've talked about the social determinants of health for so long, in some ways avoids the vital point. And the vital point really came to a head where Senate Bill 1 in Section 1 declared racism a public health crisis in the state of Connecticut. And what's powerful about that moment, the bill now has to go, of course, through the House, but it did receive bipartisan support. And what's powerful about that is that we have finally been able to utter as an institution that racism was by design deleterious to the health of people of color, specifically black people in the state of Connecticut and in this country. So when we think about what it is that we see across the board, we, we don't only see these impacts in communities, uh, African-American communities, but also in Latino communities and other emerging communities in the state. And why is that? because the very infrastructures that were created to exclude some now exclude others as well. And those outcomes that we're describing, whether they be health outcomes, educational outcomes, access outcomes, intergenerational cycles of poverty, those are all the results. And because these systems were created to do what they did, they need to be reimagined and recreated to do something different. And that is the work of policy. That is the work of prioritizing budget. That is the work of working with impacted communities and hearing from their lived experience the barriers that they face every single day. I'll give you a couple of examples of what we're seeing, doctor. Uh, and first of all, let me give you the example of two gentlemen. These were two hypothetical gentlemen that were created by a study done by Access Health Connecticut, our insurance exchange here in the state on health inequities. One gentleman born in the city of Hartford, the other one born just down the way, about five miles in West Hartford. 
two very similar early experiences. They were each born into a family, but very different outcomes. An average of 15-year difference in life expectancy between the African-American gentleman and the Caucasian gentleman down the street. Uh, a quality of life that is severely diminished for the African-American gentleman, even though, even though he didn't have the benefit of living as long as his counterpart five miles away. What that says to me is that at stops along the way, the infrastructures of support, of prevention, of intervention at the right moment, of continuous assessment and improvement when it comes to health were just not there for the gentleman in Hartford. Another thing, the impact of pandemic and COVID on women in the state has been disproportionately heavy. Women are caregivers, women are first responders, women have borne the brunt, not only as having to be in the front lines of fighting the pandemic, but also in the front lines of trying to find adequate, adequate care for their children as they did so. And then of course, the even heavier impact on women of color, more likely to remain unemployed, more likely to be impacted, more likely, by the way, to be frontline first responders. So the real question from a policy perspective that we have to ask ourselves isn't how do we support the fact that we need to do something different? It's how do we actually do different to do better? That was Stephen Hernandez from the Commission on Women, Children, Seniors, Equity, and Opportunity, along with Kika Matos from the Vera Institute of Justice, Dr. Satu Vora of the Mashantucket Pequot Tribal Nation, and Reverend Robin Anderson of the Ministerial Health Fellowship Advocacy Coalition. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation about health equity in the wake of COVID. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. People of color experience tremendous disparities in health outcomes across a range of factors that's largely rooted in patterns of systemic racism that shape not just healthcare, but also access to housing, education, and economic opportunity. Today, we're listening to a panel discussion that was part of a Cutline special from Connecticut Public Television. We focus on health equity in the wake of COVID. Our panelists are Kika Matos, Vice President of Initiatives at the Vera Institute of Justice. Dr. Satu Vora is Chief Medical Officer of the Mashantucket Pequot Tribal Nation. Stephen Hernandez is Executive Director of the Commission on Women, Children, Seniors, Equity, and Opportunity. And Reverend Robin Anderson is Pastor of the Blackwell Memorial AME Zion Church and Executive Director of the Ministerial Health Fellowship Advocacy Coalition. I asked Reverend Anderson about how her community is responding to these disparities. To really be able to see this really on the ground has really been such an eye opener. Um, you know, we have uh, the Ministerial Health Fellowship that's part of our, our work that we do. We advocate uh, to address um, health disparities and also to uh, for policy changes um, that would, uh, you know, meet the um, health concerns of um, people of color. And one of the things that we have uh, continued to see uh, in having the COVID-19 crisis counselors who have worked all over the state is just to see people, one, that still did not have insurance, who really uh, did not know where to get tested, 
did not really quite understand, um, you know, the, about COVID-19 and the urgency uh, and the frequency of being uh, tested. And even this one particular woman that one of the crisis counselors called and said, you finally found me. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know who I should call. I didn't know how I could get tested. And then to see also the amount of people that had COVID and also um, the whole entire family um, had COVID-19 and not knowing where to quarantine, did not have a place to quarantine, did not have the funds um, to be able to uh, uh, quarantine um, as well. So one of the things that we have really done is to really, one, we made up wellness kits, we made sure people had masks, many people that didn't have supplies, made sure they had sanitizer, uh, you know, made sure that they understood and knew about COVID-19, how to store their masks, how to protect themselves, the resources that were available uh, to them. Uh, if someone in the family received COVID-19, the contact tracing, and then also even when the um, vaccines came out, really educating them, educating them about the vaccine, where they can get tested, answering some of their questions, and sometimes even bringing them to get tested and also bringing them to actually get um, vaccinated. And so we have continued to see the real despair that has really uh, continued to take place uh, in so many lives and in, in the lives of black and brown people. So the question becomes, even as we speak about this and even as we talk about this now, what are we going to do to make sure we're not, we, we don't go through this again, that we're not back where we started from a hundred years ago? with maybe a different pandemic with a different name, but the same disparities, the same uh, racism uh, issues that we continue to see, the same lack of access to health care, that it would be a tragedy that after we, if we move through this pandemic, we still have the same issues going on and not a plan to be able to address those. Kika, let's talk about that change that is happening, because as Reverend Anderson suggested, it's not about waiting for others to make those change. It's really often about communities organizing for themselves on behalf of their interests. Talk to us about how communities of color are mobilizing to address these inequities, both in access and quality of care, particularly in response to COVID. When it comes to the pandemic, I, I want to start off by quoting my friend and colleague, uh, State Representative Robin Porter, who often says that those who are closest to the problems are those, those who are closest to the solution. When we came to realize that uh, around COVID, our community was being left behind in terms of access to the vaccine, we decided that we were going to roll up our sleeves and get to work. And so we partnered with a local community health clinic and, and the we, the proverbial we, are community organizers in the Fairhaven community. And um, we said, you know, we know our community best. We are being um, devastated by this pandemic. Our people are not getting access to the vaccines. In fact, so much so that the vaccines that were designated for people in our community were being taken away by suburbanites that were going to the clinic to take those vaccines from the people in our neighborhood. So we said, okay, we have to put a stop to this and we have a commitment and an obligation to make sure that every single person in our community gets vaccinated. The Fairhaven community consists of uh, about 17,200 people. 
uh, and there are 5,648 households. And so we launched what we call the Vaccinate Vacunate Fairhaven campaign. And what we did was that we took the get out the vote model and we applied it to vaccination. The get out the vote model is pretty straightforward. You want people to vote, you knock on their doors, you register them to vote. When uh, election day comes around, you offer them rides to the polls if they need one. For people who are uh, homebound, you have them fill out uh, absentee ballots. And we committed to knock on every single door in our community. So as a result of that, uh, we accomplished our goal. We knocked on 5,648 doors. Uh, we vaccinated, we made appointments, and, and during the time period that we had this uh, campaign active, uh, nearly 5,000 people were vaccinated as a result of these efforts. And the local community healthcare clinic talks about the impact of our efforts to the extent that now uh, 19,000 people have been vaccinated in their clinic. I want to focus a little bit now on the racial statistics. In January, um, the suburbanites who were taking up the vaccinations from our community were skewing the statistics. And so even though our neighborhood is 83% people of color, the majority of people who were getting vaccinated at the clinic were uh, white folks. As a result of our efforts, I am happy to report that during the month of April, 79, that 79, 79% of the people who got vaccinated at the clinic were people of color. So we fought for equity and we did it by taking matters into our own hands and decided that we were gonna be the ones who were gonna determine the outcome and the health of our community. Dr. Vora, that fight for equity and that fight for self-determination has been a persistent factor for tribal nations across this country, but particularly here in Connecticut. How are tribal nations organizing to demand health sovereignty and also change some of the outcomes that we've seen during this pandemic? It's, it begins with just being counted and recognized at the outset. Native populations are not um, not familiar, unfamiliar with uh, infectious diseases and outbreaks. If you recall with the Colombian exchange, uh, by some estimates, 80 to 90% of Native American populations at that time was decimated. But it wasn't necessarily just the virgin soil hypothesis that these new viruses or infections arrived on the shores and killed off the people. It was the combination of the outbreaks along with oppressive policies that really magnified the impact on native native people across the americas right so i think that's uh, historical trauma is still alive and present and ongoing contemporary trauma systemic racism that our august panel highlighted already uh, results in uh, a deep distrust mistrust with the institutions and systems that exist even when the encounters were non-healthcare related for many folks. So at, at Mashantucket Pequot Tribal Nation, we're fortunate that the tribal council and our respected tribal elders have always placed health as our number one objective. And the model of health sovereignty is always a work in progress. And what we decided was to certainly you know, build on that and uh, secure access to vaccines through our partnership with local uh, health districts and the state. 
this, the tribes were given two options, either work directly with Indian Health Service and the CDC or work with local uh, health partners. And we believe in local partnerships and we had an ongoing engagement with our local community partners, healthcare systems, the state uh, and the tribe and its enterprises, both in terms of testing and tracing. And we took that model to the next level when it came to vaccination. And thanks to the leadership of the tribal elders, they set the tone and the example of being early adopters. Uh, and because of that, we were able to launch vaccination throughout Mashantucket Pequot Tribal Nation with safety and speed and balancing equity with efficiency so that not a single dose goes wasted and more shots get delivered and not on the shelf. So it truly uh, has been a work in progress. There were a lot of lessons learned uh, and it comes down to the simple fact that it starts with total empathy. How may we collectively understand people and their concerns? How do we relay scientific information in a very transparent, easy to understand manner? How may we you know, really allow and amplify uh, telling stories from leaders from within? And then finally, uh, you know, how do we create that network of teams that really act synergistically? We cannot do it alone. And if nothing else has been shown by this pandemic, it truly takes uh, a broad public-private partnership to deliver on the value proposition for the people that we serve. Reverend Anderson, Dr. Vora talked about the importance of empathy and recognition in affirming the humanity of communities that too often are overlooked when we talk about these challenges. How are faith-based communities and the organizations that you are part of, how are you putting this forward as a priority for your communities? One of the things, thank you, Doctor, I'm glad you asked that. Um, one of the things that is really our model is that the only one that can save us is us. And that is so important that we are in the healing business, no matter who they are. And that it's not just even about our persons that are in our congregation, but most pastors and all of us know that um, we may pastor a church. I may pastor the Blackwell Church, but I'm also a church that's in the community. So really the world is our parish. And so a part of what we continue to uh, really do, and we came together even in the Middletown area, and that we were determined, as we saw also, and even the uh, director of the Department of Health, I have to give him credit, Kevin Elak came to us, me, and said, you know, uh, Reverend Anderson, uh, we started doing vaccinations at the senior center, and somehow or another, we cannot uh, get any people of color um, out. Um, is there anything we can do? I said, well, would you be willing to open up a clinic uh, at the church, at the Cross Street AME Zion Church? And we will call it a faith-based um, you know, clinic, a vaccination clinic. And it was in that that uh, all of us uh, pastors in the areas and even pastors that were outside of the Middletown area came together and we were determined that we were going to do everything we could to knock on doors again in our community to continue to encourage our parishioners um, to come and get vaccinated. And so we have been running a weekly uh, faith-based vaccination clinic at the Cross Street AME Zion Church at 440 West Street in Middletown, Connecticut since February. 
and we have vaccinated over 8,000 people of color in that clinic. Stephen, it sounds like it's not enough to just talk about access, but it's also important to talk about people having options, good quality options to make those kinds of decisions for themselves and for their communities. What are the solution-based demands that you are hearing from communities about being able to have those quality options and choices? Well, thank you so much for asking that. You know, so much of that, um, the informed choice, as we call it, comes from information and earnestly shared true information. And that is based and founded on an information infrastructure that is already there and trust that has been built. And what we found in the beginning of this pandemic and even uh, as we tried to work our way through those initial months is that the reason that we couldn't find communities of color is because of that lack of trust. We had never built that critical part of the infrastructure of emergency response with our linguistically diverse communities and with our black and brown communities more generally. So part of what we were doing throughout pandemic is building it as we flew it. Uh, I'll give you an example. Some of our approaches were initially uh, neutral. They were based on age or they were based on, um, uh, they were based on more uh, generalized ways of, in, of reaching community. That's not enough. The, what the Reverend uh, highlighted uh, about community being a necessary component of the solution is because it is community that will guide you into the front door so that you can have that direct impact. And so when you talk about choice, when you talk about options, health options and informed choice, parents, families, communities need to know what the full, what the full um, uh, landscape of their choices are in terms of addressing health. And it has to be honest. And where that landscape is lacking, where there may be an access desert, whether it be in medication, whether it be in information or prevention, we need to nourish those deserts back to life. And that is a relationship that has to be ongoing with the institutions that are here to serve the people and have not historically. That's Stephen Hernandez from the Commission on Women, Children, Seniors, Equity, and Opportunity, along with Kika Matos from the Vera Institute of Justice, Dr. Satu Vora of the Mashantucket Pequot Tribal Nation, and Reverend Robin Anderson of the Ministerial Health Fellowship Advocacy Coalition. When we come back, more solutions to the health inequities in our state. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Many of us are now vaccinated and transitioning to our new normal, but we can't forget about the health inequities that were exposed over this last year during the pandemic. This hour, a conversation on what we learned and how we move forward together. Our panelists are Kika Matos, Vice President of Initiatives at the Vera Institute of Justice. Dr. Satu Vora is Chief Medical Officer of the Mashantucket Pequot Tribal Nation. Stephen Hernandez is Executive Director of the Commission on Women, Children, Seniors, Equity, and Opportunity. And Reverend Robin Anderson is Pastor of the Blackwell Memorial AME Zion Church and Executive Director of the Ministerial Health Fellowship Advocacy Coalition. Ask Kika Matos about the resistance she encountered when she launched the Vaccinate Fairhaven Initiative. Sure. So at the time that we launched the campaign, the state was 
using age-based criteria to uh, provide accessibility to vaccines. Uh, and given the huge disparities in our neighborhood when it came to the pandemic, we went to the state and we said, look, we, have, we are launching this campaign. It's targeting one of the worst hit neighborhoods in the entire state. This is a campaign based um, uh, on our own knowledge of our community. It is led by people in this community. We're doing it in partnership with a local clinic. We really want you to waive the age eligibility requirements, consider this as a pilot, and if it is successful, we will give it to you. We will hand it over to you on a silver platter. We will provide you with technical assistance and you could use this in other uh, parts of the community uh, in the state of Connecticut that have been hard hit by the pandemic. Uh, and I spoke to a number of high-ranking officials in the administration, and the answer was just a flat no. I can't tell you how many different ways I tried to couch the arguments. I reached out to a number of allies who uh, have influence with the administration. Uh, you know, the, the acting commissioner of the Department of Public Health was adamant that she was not going to wage the eligibility requirements based on age. The governor's office was also adamant that they were not going to do that. And this is when, for me, it really dawned on me that um, despite the state's acknowledgement that it has failed communities of color when it comes to the pandemic, the state was also unwilling to engage in a little creativity to address these huge disparities. Uh, and so I saw for the first time in my professional career just how structural racism really comes into play um, even when the disparities are elevated and um, demonstrated uh, to state officials. Uh, and so it made us angry, it made us really upset, um, and, but we determined that we were going to, despite uh, the roadblocks that the state was putting forward, that we were going to move forward with this campaign. Now, let me end with a with a story, with a side you know a side story. On the day that we launched, we knocked on a thousand doors, and we um, had a significant number of appointments that we were able to make for those who were age eligible age eligible at the time. Um, as the campaign continued to show its success. Uh, what ended up happening is that uh, we were made aware that a few weeks after we launched, maybe it was three uh, three weeks after the, we launched it, the state actually issued an RFP using our model, and they granted a $2.3 million contract to a well-connected um, firm uh, to replicate our model in certain zip codes uh, in the state. And so, I, I guess, what, what is it that they say when people um, uh, copy you? That's a form of flattery. I guess I would say that that was proof that they were acknowledging our own success. But the, the flaw with their model is that they did not do what we did. They did not start with community, right? They did not resource this campaign. We did this on our own. Uh, they did not um, set aside these resources, identify these zip codes, and go to community leaders in those zip codes to say, we've got money on the table. This is a campaign model that worked. We would be more than happy to resource this. Let us, let us replicate this model in, in your neighborhood for success. And in, instead, 
significant resources went to well-connected um, firms without contacts with those zip codes that they were supposed to target. Dr. Vora, you said that one of the real strengths of the tribal nations in terms of the response here and action was that tribal leaders led by example in terms of embracing access to vaccines, but also promoting that as a solution. Do you think we would have seen better outcomes if tribal leadership and tribal nation had been empowered to do that earlier in the process of promoting vaccines? I believe so. And we see that not just at Mashantucket Pequot Tribal Nation, but across Indian country. The Navajo Nation, as you recall, was one of the hardest hit. Uh, and that's the largest uh, nation by geography and population as well. They had significant mortality, but they turned the tide because they embraced uh, leadership and uh, certainly led by example by participating in even uh, phase three studies. Um, and if you recall, Native communities are mistrusting because of real concerns around experimentation, forced sterilization, all the trauma that this group certainly knows about. So for, for the Native leadership to then embrace participatory research so that Native communities are represented in the study population so that the results are meaningful back to those people, that was a great leap forward. And I, I believe that uh, Indian country has shown that when, when the local leaders take charge and lead, when they embrace health sovereignty uh, and use science with common sense, the adoption is much better as compared to um, externally imposed or forced um, method. Reverend Anderson, what about you? Do you agree that empowering communities of color to be able to lead some of that at the beginning may have helped us see more people getting vaccinated early on? Thank you for that question, Doctor. Absolutely, yes. I really believe that it wasn't until uh, they, they saw that it was not working. I actually served on the uh, vaccination advisory board uh, for the um, governor and, um, you know, one of the things that uh, really, you know, concerned me was that uh, they really had a one-way uh, uh, thought process of doing this. And that was that they would actually, you know, try to do a lot of different town hall meetings and webinars and stuff. And I knew that that was not going to quite work because, again, you have to have trusted messengers that people trust, uh, people of color trust. And also that um, in many ways, we put resources in various places, but never put the resources where they belong in the community. And with those trusted messengers who are able to get the message out and who are able to be able to knock on those doors and speak to people and really uh, talk to them about uh, getting vaccinated. I believe that we would have been a lot further along had we done this at the beginning, had we brought faith leaders had we, had we brought uh, community leaders, had we brought tribal nations, um, you know, together and really discussed together, how are we going to do this? How are we going to reach the community? What are some of the things that you feel and you know that have worked? Because who knows our community better than we do? Nobody. 
And so again, I think that, um, and so even now, that's some of the resistance that people are saying, that they really feel like people of color are really feeling like that it's not really a concern overall about them and about their health, but really it's because, again, now I've heard many even young people, that age group now that we're working with between 25 and 35 is saying, all of a sudden the government, the, the government needs us. All of a sudden they want us to get vaccinated, but they never cared about us, never cared about our health never was concerned about um, us you know, with the virus or having the virus. As a matter of fact, which is very true, they didn't even know how many of us had the virus, how many of us died. They couldn't even give statistical information about that. And of course, that's the way we collect data because we don't have a standardized way of collecting race, ethnic, and language data. So again, um, had they come to us in the beginning and had they given us the resources to be able to reach out to our community, uh, to our uh, congregation, uh, we could have been a lot further along than we are now. And so it's almost like now uh, uh, now they're coming to us now and asking us because we've gotten to this place in which you know they can see that really the way and the mechanism that, that, that they are trying to do were not, are not working and that really it requires community people, trusted people, who look like them, people that they know are not just for them, not just for here, here for them now, but have been there for them in the long haul. And when this is all over, we'll still be there for them. So I think that again, that's what I'm saying. It would be a tragedy if we go back to business as usual, if we don't learn some lessons from this and really take more effort in involving the community. And even as we declared racism as a public health issue, don't do it without the community coming up with various kinds of things that's going to address systemic and structural racism. But let's do this together. Let's do this a different way. Let's include those persons that are in the trenches, grassroots organizations, faith-based organizations. Um, let's put us at the table. Let, let Invite us to the table. Let us all come together and work together and not just get our information from us, and then use resources to do something else, but actually put the resources where they need to be and help us to continue to do the work that we can, we can do it. Just give us the resources, we'll continue to do it. And even without the resources, we're going to do it because we care about our people and we want to live and not die. Stephen, one of the most important resources necessary to protecting communities and advancing is trust. And it seems abundantly clear from this conversation that that trust is broken if it ever existed. And it's not just trust in community or trust in government and leadership, but trust that people feel their issues are being raised. How do we start to build or repair that trust? Well, you know, oftentimes we look at outcomes and we, we think that they are uh, indicators of an ongoing condition uh, that is based in community. There's something wrong with community. Uh, when we see sickness, when we see poverty, when we see lack of access, our inclination is to think that something's wrong with the community. Well, in fact, it is the failures, the failures of the resources of government, of local institutions to really hone in on those problems, to hone in on those outcomes that are based by much larger and much deeper issues, to hone in on them with resources, it is that failure that we really need to address. 
And that is that is an element, there's an element of trust building that needs to go along with that. How do you do that? You do that by not over-promising. You do it by delivering on what you promise. And you do it by being humble before the task, being humble before community, and engaging community, as others have said, every step of the way. We don't need you to solve our problems. In many ways, we need you to stop being the problem that has exacerbated the conditions that we face in our cities and in our, in our towns uh, where black and brown people live. Uh, the real fact here is that uh, engagement, trust building, those are action verbs. And they are action verbs that need to be led by people with power, by people with resources, for people who have been downtrodden by those institutions generation after generation. Stephen has given us a, a really important framework for thinking about what should happen next so that we're not just addressing COVID-19 today, but also thinking about the lessons and action steps to be taken moving forward. Kika, if you could give our audience one thing that you would say is an important takeaway from what we've learned and experienced during COVID to prepare for the future, what would you say? Community has to be central to all of the efforts uh, around uh, public health and public safety, uh, and that we have to center the voices of those people most impacted to lead the way. Dr. Vora, a key takeaway, please. I believe that um, we need representation, and not just that, but actual leadership from within the communities that we all serve. And I think one concrete example that I would recommend our viewers in diverse communities to look at is, for example, the local Southeast Connecticut area health education center. How may we empower our, our youth to start engaging with public health, health professions uh, at an early stage, starting in middle school, high school? Uh, that is what will ta it'll take grassroots engagement by the community to then be represented and lead. And our job throughout the state and the nation is to make sure that we don't, that we don't put barriers to folks who want to engage. Reverend Anderson, what's a key takeaway that we should think about as we move forward? I think one of the things that, that comes to mind is that do not do this without us. And what I mean by that is that do not make any decisions for us, but do it with us. Do not make any changes that will affect our community, will affect our people, and will affect the health and well-being of black and brown people without us. Do not develop programs, do not develop initiatives, and do not take the resources and send it someplace else without pouring it back into the place in which the resources are needed the most. Don't do this without us. Which means that we need to be at the table. We need to be at the forefront of being able to deal with the issues that are going on in our community. Who better knows that but us? Please do not do it without us. 
I'd like to thank my guest, Kika Matos, is Vice President of Initiatives at the Vera Institute of Justice. Dr. Situ Vora is Chief Medical Officer for the Mashantucket Pequot Tribal Nation. Stephen Hernandez is Executive Director at the Commission on Women, Children, Seniors, Equity, and Opportunity. And Reverend Robin Anderson is Pastor of the Blackwell Memorial AME Zion Church and Executive Director of the Ministerial Health Fellowship Advocacy Coalition. Thank you all for joining us. Thank, Thank you, you for having us. You can find a link to the entire episode of Cutline, Health Equity in the Wake of COVID at our website. It's ctpublic.org slash disrupted. Disrupted is produced by Jane Scoble-Wolf, Shekinah Collier, and Katie Tolarski. Our interns are Macy Carvalho and Kelly Langevin. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Thanks for listening.